Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Good evening. There we go. Um, you guys are really quiet. Hey, thanks for coming out in the rain. And... Uh, for being here tonight. We're going to continue. Oh, it's like a rotisserie. Uh, wow. Uh, we're going to continue on uh, in the conversation about truth. And we've had some great questions come in and we've uh, prepared since Sunday to uh, go through some of those questions. But we also want you to know that tonight you're going to have question, uh, opportunities to ask questions from the floor. Uh, Scott Boudreaux is going to uh, roam in a little while when we ask him to. And uh, if you have a question, raise your hand. If you don't want to speak into the mic, uh, Scott does that quite a bit. He will interpret and hand the question up. If you want to ask the question directly, uh, feel free to do that. We'll let you know that that's coming uh, because we would like to respond. I know some people say they don't text or they don't have uh, that ability and they have questions. And the only thing we're going to ask tonight is if you ask a question that's parallel to our discussion on truth, we'll definitely uh, jump on that. If it's a question that's going to be answered later in this series, I don't want you to feel put off if we say, can you wait a week or two until we get to that particular. We had several questions that are going to come down the line uh, when we talk about several other topics uh, in this particular series. Uh, but that is my uh, tendency to do, which is annoying to most every one of you. I would like you to stand up and talk to someone around you if you don't know who they are, and let's get to know each other just a little bit tonight. All right, you may be seated. You guys are obedient. I would like to pray as we begin. This is a topic bigger than all of us. Uh, and so what God reveals, we find to be true, and so we're going to ask him to do that tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this place. Thank you that, uh, for these people that have gathered here tonight. Uh, God, we're, we're grateful that it's a safe, comfortable place where we can have an open discussion about big-ticket items in our lives. And I'm just uh, excited about what you're doing in my heart and my mind as you refine and define things so beautifully. Thank you for being a God who's not disengaged from us, uh, but a God who's actually uh, came and became a part of us and restored everything from the inside out. Thank you that you do that in our hearts and our minds. And as we have talked about now for the last several weeks, uh, may you teach us how to bring every thought and hold it captive to Jesus and to take all philosophies and theories and thoughts and test them against the revelation of your word and the gifting of your Holy Spirit to allow us to be the kind of people that can be useful and beneficial to one another, and most of all, to represent your kingdom and your truth in this world. And God, you know the questions that will be asked as you uh, lead us toward this, and you know the questions that have already been posted. And I pray that it'll be a benefit to every one of us, and that we will leave here unified, not around an answer, uh, but around our hope, which is found in the work that you're doing to bring all people to understand your mercy and kindness. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I think you, most of you know that the guy to my furthest right, Michael DeFazio, was with us here Sunday morning and has also preached in this series and been here on Wednesday nights regularly. Uh, in the middle, if you don't know Peter, I think many of you will, this is Peter Buckland, also a professor at Ozark, but one of the elders. And uh, so it's really threatening when you bring one of your bosses on stage, but we allowed him to come up here. And uh, I appreciate Peter's perspective. Peter does a lot in... Uh, family ministry and counseling, and I think the benefit that Michael and I both agreed to why we were grateful to have Peter with us is 
Peter gets asked these questions in a myriad of ways. No one comes up to Peter and says, what's the truth? But they will come up to him and say, I've got this issue going on in my life. What am I supposed to do? And I think you can answer that question both ways. And that's the beauty of God's truth is it's practical and it's theoretical all at the same time. And that's good. That's good for all of us. So, Michael, uh, we're going to start with one of the big questions. And I'm going to read here if I, my contacts will allow me. Uh, where is the Holy Spirit in the modern church? Can there be idolatry and intellectualism? Uh, yeah, I love this question as a, as a starting point for our conversations because it speaks to precisely what we're doing. And, and I wouldn't suggest that the person who asked that is asking these additional questions, but I imagine there are some who are wondering whether you or others who are maybe present on Sunday, is this even, even worthwhile conversation? It seems maybe detached from everyday life. And yeah, are we just trying to sort of be smart and show smartness? Is that the goal of all this? Um, and so I'll answer the specific questions and hope, hopefully speak to some of those concerns. I think the Holy Spirit is the same place in the modern church where the Holy Spirit was in, in the church throughout the ages, and that is, you know, in the lives of believers, transforming them into Christ-likeness. That the Holy Spirit is still today doing what the Holy Spirit has always done, and the Holy Spirit's work is to produce fruit in us. Uh, you're familiar maybe with the text in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, on down the list, gentleness and patience are two key ones that I need to uh, think about often. So the Holy Spirit is doing in the modern church what the Holy Spirit always does, drawing people closer to Jesus so that they become more like him, both those that don't know him, bringing them closer, and those of us who do, bringing us closer to look like him. And uh, I, I, in answering that question, I, I want to say very clearly that I don't regard there to be any sort of a, discon- a necessary disconnect between the work of the Spirit and, um, and intellectual type things, thinking well about truth. And uh, let me just read you one of many texts that I could read you. Um, One of my favorite ones in this regard, it's in the book of Colossians, and uh, it's, uh, Paul is, um, is talking about um, growing in the fruit of the Spirit. And here's, here's what, let me just read you the text. He's, he's talking about his prayers for them. And he says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. So in just, I know that's only one reading of the text, and uh, there's a lot of words in there, but I imagine you saw the main themes, that here we have the talk of the Spirit producing fruit in us, character, every good work, doing good things, becoming good people, the kind of things that we would all celebrate. And there's a deep connection in this text between that and knowledge, wisdom, understanding. So in that sense, I don't think there's a, there's a necessary distinction that we have to make between the whole movement of the Holy Spirit and thinking well about truth. I think those two actually pair hand in hand perfectly. So that's part of my answer to the question. And then very shortly, the answer to the last part, can there be idolatry and intellectualism? Of course there can be. There can be idolatry in anything. And the closer you get to Christ, um, the better your idols are. Here's what I mean by that. Like when you're far away from Christ, we tend to idolize silly things. But when you come closer to Christ and you've said sort of, you know, you've, you've rejected all of the obvious sins, you begin to idolize the good gifts. We're not going to idolize bad things. We're going to idolize good things. So for people who are close to Jesus, we start to idolize things like our family, which is a great gift to us. Our own local church, which is a great gift to us. The Bible itself as, as, as sort of a book that's disconnected from God's actual person uh, as a gift to us. And then also thinking about truth. So of course it can become an idol. Any good thing can become an idol. 
And the question becomes, um, you know, are you elevating this thing above God? And when it comes to intellectualism, I have a very simple test that I apply to myself and that I would apply to us as a church. And that is, am I concerned uh, with being right so that I can win an argument? Or am I concerned with knowing the truth so that I can both become more like Jesus and help others to do the same? And so for me, the question of can intellectualism become idolatry? Well, of course it can. But then the next question would be, when is it and how do we know? And that's the answer. If you want to be right so that you can be right, if you want to be right so that you can win arguments or say clever things at dinner parties or sound really smart when you're having Bible discussions, then you're actually turning intellectualism into an idol. But if you want to know the truth so that you can become good in Christ and that you can help others become good in Christ, then, then, then good, then wonderful, then you're actually, I think, approaching these things entirely properly. And on the flip side, anti-intellectualism is a more likely idol for today's church than intellectualism. We fall in love with not being intellectual, um, in part because it makes us feel secure in ourselves because we all know that we know there's a lot of things we don't know. So we get to just sort of be lazy and, and sit where we are. And I think that's just as much of a danger as intellectualism. So we've got to be careful, no question. It's not just about being smart. It's about being good in the name of Jesus. Um, but, but the knowledge, according to Paul anyway, in the context of prayer, knowledge is, is a major part of how the Spirit does that for us. So sorry if that was too long. But no, yeah. I want to jump a little bit with what uh, Michael said there. I think we have to be careful that the reason I think the word fundamentalism has such a negative connotation is there, there is an arrogance about ignorance, meaning that people say statements that have a germ of truth and in the right context are accurate. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. But you have to understand the Bible is a living book. Its meaning doesn't change, but the depth of its understanding is revealed. We've all had that experience. Just shake your head if you've had the experience of reading a text for the fifth time, and on the fifth time, something pops that you could not have handled the first time. So we can't fall into that. That you know, I've heard it because I, I was probably the most unintellectual in an intellectual realm at a Bible college. But it was it was fun for me to learn from smart people, to engage that conversation and translate that from the culture of the academy to the local congregation. And I think there's roles for some of us to be interpreters. But you have to have a semblance of understanding what the text says. So I appreciate that because we received questions like there was a moment uh, on Sunday where Michael defined what's core to him in Christianity. And there was a, a machine gun effect of questions. What about this and what about this because he didn't say it. We have to be careful that we also provide grace with our truth to say that if, if I'm going to speak on subject A on a Sunday morning, 28 minutes on a Sunday morning, let's say I take the whole 63-minute hour, 63 minutes wouldn't allow me to exhaust all that could be said on any topic. So there's a tendency for us to give sound bites and snippets, hoping that it can be that you'll open it up and deal with it and see the beauty of it. Does that make sense? So it's not saying that are there people that have become so pursuant of uh, intelligentsia that they've lost their faith? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's one of the tragedies of the academy. But there's also, I thank God for people that are researching and finding the nuances of language and culture and writing those things down so that we can develop ourselves beyond a Missouri context. We have to be really, really careful that we, that we do that. And I'm not saying that to you because you're all perfect. I'm talking to the people that will be listening on podcast. You know that, right? <laughs> Okay, good. All right, Peter. Next question we had uh, fascinates me as well. 
how will God truly judge us? Since we're talking about truth contextually, um, is it in the way we live? Is it by the amount of sin or no sin? If our sin's forgiven, how can we be judged by them? This is, was a composite of about five different text questions. Let me start with this, that I hear anxiety in that question. Do you hear the anxiety? Nobody likes to be scrutinized. And one of the things that I would like for us to think about as a church, first of all, is what kind of a God do we serve as Christian people? So let me give you something practical to start with, and then I'll answer the question. If you and I do the best that we know how to do with the knowledge that we have, with as pure of a heart as we can have, and we offer that to God every day as our form of service, we put our head down on the pillow at night and say, thank you for being with me, and thank you for helping me, and take my life and do something amazing with it, I think that's what we need to do. And we need to rest in that as Christian people. Could we have done more? Probably. Could we have done less? Definitely. But God doesn't measure us on those little tiny nuances as Christian people, yet we still have a tremendous amount of anxiety about whether God loves us and likes us and accepts us. So let's go to Revelation chapter 20 and the great white throne. Revelation chapter 20 talks about the judgment on the Christian and the non-Christian. And so what I would say, speaking to a predominantly Christian audience, that as you and I are uh, Christian, we have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. We have become a part of his kingdom. We are not judged and separated from God and thrown into the lake of fire as Revelation uh, metaphors and talks about that. We are exempt from that judgment. But there is another kind of a judgment that the scripture talks about um, that I want to give to you um, just kind of the words of Jesus and the words that are in the scripture to kind of give you an idea about what he's looking for. Um, If you want to jot any of these down, uh, feel free to, and I'll give you just the summary. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, every careless word that you utter is a word that you are held accountable for. Matthew, that was Matthew 12, 36. How many don't want that in the Bible? Okay, good. Uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 12, you will generally give an accounting of yourself. And this, I want you to think about, is a stewardship accounting. How did we do with the Lord? How do we do with our lives? That was Romans chapter 14, verse 12. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Uh, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. There is an expectation that you and I pursue righteousness. That was 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.15, our works will be tested with fire. Um, God's judgment goes on our works and he sees what remains. 1 Corinthians 3.15 was that one. Two more. 1 Peter 4.17, judgment begins with a household of God. Uh, That's 1 Peter 4.17. God expects us to behave and to interact in certain ways. And the last one, James chapter 3 verse 1, teachers will be judged more strictly. James chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what I want to say just in summary for a really complicated answer. Um, You and I are are to have security in Christ. And when when we pursue Christ wholeheartedly and we want to be like Christ, we will naturally begin to fall more and more in line with Christ. Does that mean that something that I did five years ago that I have been forgiven for uh, will be used against me in the day of judgment? Probably not. I don't think that's what it's talking about. I don't think God is keeping a great big list and says, you said this one careless word when you were 13. Just one? That's a good day. And what what I think we're looking at here is that God wants for us to look at our life, if I could say it more seriously, more soberly, 
that there really is a relationship here. And God really does have expectations. We don't get to do whatever we want, think whatever we want, say whatever we want, and be okay. Just my wife is here. Ask her if she would like that if I did that to her. Say, do, think, and feel whatever I wanted to, and she just had to be okay with that. We know that that's not what a relationship is. So if you will take the judgment passages and you will superimpose them on a relationship with Christ, you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. If you walk in repentance and in humility and do the best job that you can, I'm actually looking forward to seeing Christ. I am not afraid of seeing him because I will have made mistakes and I will be judged, but God will know exactly the best way to do that. Because I am saved and you are saved, we don't have to fear that unless we are holding back and we are behaving in ways that we should not. So live repentantly, live openly, offer your life to God every single day, put your head on your pillow at night and say thank you and sleep well in peace. Amen. I'm not topping that. Next question. It says, and I'm going to start with this one, if I may. Although apologetics is interesting and can add some rational foundation, do you really find it helpful in proclamation? I'm going to interpret that question, what I think the intent was, is we talk about this, these facts, having them in your pocket, uh, knowing uh, what, you know, different questions like veracity of the word of God, Uh, What about some of the seemingly contradictions between Luke's account or Matthew's account with a number? Or, you know, like 70 or 72 were sent out. Which one is it? And does that invalidate the truth of the scripture? I I go back to what Peter told us. We studied it this summer. He says, Paul says the same thing. You need to be able to give a defense for the reason you have hope. So back to that intellectual, anti-intellectual conundrum we find ourselves in. The reason we need to have a worldview about the truth and understand where we can see truth revealed that's valuable and time-tested is in, no one's ever walked up to me and said, do you believe every fact of the Bible? No one's ever asked me that question. I have been asked from the age of 12, from 12-year-olds all the way up to people in their 80s, do you really believe this is all true? That's an apologetic and the reason I have hope is, and I, I can never tell this story, and I cried last week, I'm not about to do that again. So, but I can tell you three prayers that have been answered in my life, and someday I, I'll be able to. But if, if I told you these three specific prayers that are so undeniably the hand of God, if you would ever ask me, do I believe there is a God, my answer is yes. And it's not from facts taken from a textbook. It's from an engagement with a God who revealed himself and introduced himself to me through this book and then blew the doors off my life by getting involved in mine. And so, is apologetics scary? Yeah. Are there people smarter than you? If you start saber-rattling with some intellectual atheist, uh, Chad said something either first night or second night. He said one of the things Christians do is we attribute that atheists are just smarter than us. They're not. They're not. You have the truth available to you in Jesus Christ. So be able to answer this question. Why do you believe that God is real and that Jesus Christ truly exists? And when you start with that, your answers are correct. Mm. Now, can they be expanded? Can scripture be used to balance this all out? Absolutely. But I don't want us to be fearful Nobody runs around and says, I'm an apologist. Heather and I have this argument, my wife and I. She says, you never said you're sorry. You asked for an apology. 
An apology is why I did what I did. Saying I'm sorry means I wish I hadn't. So when someone asks you for your apologetic, all you're simply saying to them is, here's the reasons I believe in Jesus Christ. And when you share that from your experience and from the scriptures, I think God works in that powerfully because it's your story. And as we heard today on campus, people's stories matter. Comments? Um, One quick comment that I would make is God wants to be known. He is a personal God. And because he is a personal God, he has a perspective. And we live in a world where we get to just create our own perspectives. And we get to project those on whoever we want to. And God is saying, don't project your understanding of me. Get to know me. And I look on apologetics as a way that we can get to know God. Who he really says that he is. Now we can nitpick about those finer details. But don't lose the fact that God is a God who wants to be known. And he's trying through his word to be clear and to be precise as best as he can be using the written word and empowering that so that you have an experience with him. But if we don't know the word and we don't know why the word is constructed and we don't know aspects of the word, we really don't know God. We just simply have our own perspective about who God is. And it would be sad to go through our whole lives thinking we're having a relationship with somebody that we're not. Yeah, and I, good thoughts, and I would just add another couple of quick things to it, because for me, this has been a question for me. There's, there was a season in my life, pretty long one, where I, I kind of thought apologetics was, was, was pretty worthless, and there were all sorts of goofy reasons why, but I've become convinced that I was wrong during those years, and I think part of what I was reacting against was the misuse, and here's kind of what I've come to in, in, in thinking about these things and the value of, of, of defending our faith is... Uh, the, and I, part of what I hear in the question, I may not be hearing it right, is uh, you know, apologetics for the Christian, apologetics for the non-Christian. So how much is this a part of our desire to do evangelism and to bring in those from the outside, or our desire to strengthen the faith of, the, faith of those who are on the inside? And um, my thought on it is, is apologetics, in order to understand its proper place, you've got to think about the way in which our mind and our heart are interwoven in the process of coming to know the Lord. And I mean mind and heart in the way we use the phrase, our intellect and our affections. And often um, it's actually, you know, the, the actual process of saying yes to Jesus is there's typically some element of mystery in there that Jesus just got a hold of me and, and I just couldn't resist it any longer. And very rarely will you find a person who was argued into the faith. Uh, because of that, though, for a while, I would say, I always, I kind of thought apologetics wasn't useful because in evangelism because I can't argue anybody into the faith. And I was, here's where I was wrong is, yeah, the, 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 the heart has to be engaged in order for a non-believer to become a believer. But the mind is often what keeps the heart engageable, if that makes sense. So when you talk to your friends and you defend your faith, you're not trying to convert them. You're just giving them enough, as you guys said. You're just sort of showing them, listen, I've studied this out. I'm not just saying this. I actually believe this for a reason. And it's often not even the content of your answers, but the fact that you actually have an answer yep. that will at least keep them curious enough and close enough so that the Lord can get a hold of them. Does that make sense? And then on the flip side, once you have established your faith, this is where I actually see the primary role of apologetics coming in for people like us. Who, who believe and are, are confident that we know God personally and we're coming to know the truth about him, apologetics comes in and clarifies that truth and strengthens our faith. So once we believe, apologetics becomes useful because after a while, you know, we have this heart experience, this mystery experience where Jesus got a hold of us and it's awesome and we want to celebrate it. But there also comes a point where we say, but I also want to know that I didn't just sort of feel my way into this. 
that what I actually believed is legitimate and true. And then apologetics becomes very helpful for helping us to you know, know with confidence or believe with confidence that what we're actually basing our lives on and asking others to base their lives on is not just our perspective, but is actually true because God has revealed it to be true. And if I can add one more component to the apologetics, it will take faith in your life, an experience of faith, to have your own apologetic. Studying scripture is not, has not allowed anybody to step into that realm of what Peter said, that God is ultimately trying to reveal himself. You have to get out of the boat to walk on water. There, there is nobody who's come closer to God that didn't pay a great price to draw into that. So eventually we have to, we have to leap into this thing and, and there are going to be intellectuals who won't take the leap and challenge your intellect over it. But the, the reality is, do you believe that there's a God? If someone said to you, I heard your father lost his temper, most everyone in this room could go, yeah, my dad can do that. But if someone said, I heard your dad cheated money out of his work, majority of us in this room would go, uh-uh. No, that's not my dad. I know my dad. I've experienced with my dad. I know my dad's heart. I know all of his failures. When you talk about God, there are people that are going to challenge you, God, and the word of God reveals his identity. And then our faith gives us that moment where we hold on to it and know it's to be true. So it's really a deep-layered question, but I don't think we have anything to fear about apologetics. I think it's good. That's what people are asking you. And they're asking you, not me, because they know you. And that relationship is what God uses in community we talked about last week. Uh, okay, we're going to do something that's going to... Uh, we're just going to call them forum questions. We're all going to uh, hit on them real quick and try to proceed through some of these. They're good questions, but we think we can do it rather rapidly. Are there other? We think we can. We got this. Okay, I we got, got two this. professors I and a preacher, so <laughs> what's rapidly, right? Yeah. Uh, are there other truths outside of the resurrection that Christians should hold on to with assurance? And then they ask a secondary question, which is brilliant. And are there modern truths about Scripture that Christians should let go of? Rapture? evolution, young earth, etc. Michael? Yeah, I can, I can try to be, and again, in the interest of being brief, I won't say everything that I want to say, but I'll just say a few things. Um, let me answer the second one first. I think that I don't, uh, I wouldn't even phrase it that we need to let go of, but I think loosen our grip on is maybe what we do need to do with some of these, you know, modern debates. Um, even something as, you know, important as the interpretation of Genesis 1 um, please, please hear me when I, when I say, I'm not even saying that you need to change what you believe on it, but what we need to do is to recognize that in some of these cases, so long as you believe that the scripture is true and that God is our creator, we may be looking at someone who believes that this text should be read a little bit differently than we do, but believes those core things, that's still within the realm of, of Christianity, right? They're, maybe, maybe they're wrong, maybe we're wrong. But the point is, is that we all believe the core thing, which is that God is our creator and that he made us for a purpose and so on and so forth. So I think that whether, even if you disagree with me on that specific one, that's fine. The answer, I think, my answer to the last one would be there's certain things we need to loosen our grip on. And then there are, though, those things that we need to tighten our grip on. And we've made a big deal about the resurrection being at the very core of that because I, I do believe that Scripture indicates that it is the core of that based on some key texts, Romans 10, 9, 1 Corinthians 15, um, some of these places where I think this definition thing happens. So then the question becomes, if there's more than just the resurrection and the lordship of Jesus right there in the core, how do we know what's there? And this is where I actually have found, the more I've learned about scripture, this may seem ironic to you or off, but the more I learn about scripture, the more I actually grow an appreciation for the ancient historic creeds. 
Now, I know that if you maybe came out of a Catholic context or are not familiar with creeds, it's either a weird thing or a bad thing. And for me, it was just sort of a weird thing that bordered on bad things because I didn't really understand what it was. I just thought it was just this, this list of beliefs that didn't actually have anything to do with Scripture, that people believed more than they believed the Bible. But then when I studied this historically and discovered that, no, what this is, is the church at specific important times in history saying, here's the, what we think are the most important teachings of Scripture that should form the core. So, for instance, you have the Apostles' Creed, which is the shortest one, and it starts with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Right there, that's pretty important. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, so on and so forth, goes through the whole story of Jesus. I believe in the Holy Spirit. It even says Holy Catholic Church, but that's not capital C. That just comes from the Latin word for universal. I believe in the one church of God throughout all the world. And so I look at the, some of the creeds not as being on par with Scripture. Don't hear me say that. But I look at them as helpful for helping me see what is central to Scripture. And so the way I would do this in my own life, and I think as a church, is you constantly go back and forth from the text is where we live most of the time. And then we ask ourselves, we've had 2,000 years to learn from. And in the same way, it would be foolish for me not to learn from both the successes and mistakes of my parents and grandparents. It'd be crazy for us as the church not to learn from both the successes and mistakes of our forefathers and foremothers who've gone before us. So we look at this 2,000 years and ask, what have been the things that have been held core throughout time? And that's a, probably a pretty good indicator of what of we should hold to be core as well. So I'm just going to stop there and, 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 and say those, those couple things and let you guys either correct or build on that. Um, I would add one thing. Uh, when I looked at this question, the very first thing that popped in my mind was the name Emmanuel. And often the very first thing is really important because we often feel alienated from God and separated from him. And there is a connection that God wants to keep with us. And that connection is under stress all the time. And because we can't see him and he's not gonna show up and sit down on a chair and have a conversation with you, you can drift away from him and move away. And one of the most important core concepts about Christianity is the person of the Holy Spirit inside of us, God with us, so that no matter what we face, he is present in that circumstance. Um, and I would just say to you on top of what Michael has said, that there is a personal element that you want to keep track of. And that if you lose that, if you lose the awe of God, if you lose the connection of God, that's something that you need to try to reconnect with on every level, your thinking level, your emotional level, and your behavioral level, so that you know that you are connected to him because he wears the very name that could be translated connect, Emmanuel, God with us. About what to give up, um, I think one thing that's really important for us, echoing what Michael said, and I would put it this way, is that there are different ways to look at the same topic, but there is a core belief that you and I need to hold on to. And one of the things I think that's important for us is to let people talk about those other questions that they have, because the Bible does not satisfy our curiosity and does not tell us everything that we want to know. It doesn't put it in a Western mindset, in a nice, neat little package, so we can again feel comfortable. God said, trust me, trust me, trust me. I have this taken care of. You have what you need, trust me for what you don't know. Trust me for what doesn't make sense. And we are constantly trying to put everything in order and trying to have it make sense so we have it right. And we can't do that with a relationship with God. So, you and I might look on an issue and actually think about it in different terms. 
and if it is one of the subordinate issues, not an issue of the core of faith, um, and they are both equally acceptable to take a look at, the, the real answer could be a third one. We are constantly trying to make sense, and part of what we do as a church is we journey together and we link our arms and we say, we will not fight about these secondary issues. Uh, we will explore them, we will talk about them, and some we might actually give up over the course of time. Uh, but we need to be really careful that we treat each other with the respect and dignity that we need to as fellow journeyers not having all the answers. My grandfather used to say it very simply to me. He'd say, what's important to me doesn't have to be important to you, but you shouldn't treat it as less because I find it important. And I think in the church, many of us have been wounded in a situation where if you drank or smoked or did this or went there or saw movies or played cards or you did this or this, you were judged by people as not loving Jesus when the fruit of the Spirit could be gushing all over people because of you. So we hold the most important things. And, and I'm a very simple guy. And when Michael talks about the creeds, I grew up in a Polish Catholic town, for crying out loud, South Bend, Indiana with Notre Dame. They own it. And you know why the creeds existed was in an age of illiteracy. It was a song they would sing so that they knew what the Bible said, even though they couldn't read it on their own. I think it's beautiful. And it's the core, the core values of what we're talking about. Peter, I'm going to throw this one to you. It's a family life question, and, and uh, you're good at this. Um, it's fairly simple, but it's a common question asked in the church. Is there a specific age of accountability for a child to make their profession of faith and baptism? Developmentalists say that age eight is a really good ballpark age for people to, first of all, be able to own their own faith. Children are able, at age eight, to put the gospel together in a simplistic way and say, I can say that I believe this, somewhere around age eight. For some children, it's earlier. For some children, it is later. Um, we established in the church an age of accountability that goes along with the Jewish bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah. That's when a uh, child became an adult. There was no teenage life back then. It was just childhood and adult. And that happened somewhere along the line of the, ch the change in thinking from childhood to adulthood, which is roughly somewhere around 11 or 12. And that sort of became the age of accountability because you could begin to think about the church in more adult-like ways. So my question that I looked at is, um, does a child need to look at faith in adult-like ways? Or can a child look at faith in a childlike way and still get all the answers correct? I grew up in a church that would not baptize children. So when my daughter came up at age almost seven and said I want to be baptized, I just like wanted to die. Because I thought, you're not supposed to do this. I got baptized at age 11, which was about the appropriate age, the earliest age that our church would baptize, and I sort of put it all together then. What I forgot was that my daughter was actually growing up in a Christian home. I did not grow up in a home that professed Christ on any regular basis. I had to put it all together on my own. And what I forgot was our children want to obey God, yes? They want to do the right thing, and they look to us to say, what is that? So uh, what we did is that we um, had other people ask our children the important questions about why do you want to be baptized, and what does this mean? And it's all about the relationship with Christ. And uh, my daughter, Audrey, came up to the baptistry, and she, I, I brought her up to a baptistry. We weren't here at the time. And I said, explain baptism to me. And she said, Daddy, it's kind of like play acting. You walk down into the water, and it's kind of like Jesus after he died, and you're going to put him in the grave. And it's like you um, saying that you don't want to live your life in a certain way. And when you go under the water, it's like when Jesus died and you died. And when you come up, you get to live your life for Jesus. And I said, here's water. What hindereth thou from being baptized? <laughs> 
Now here's what I want you to know. Acts chapter 16, verse 30 says that's all you need. So my question is, is that really all you need? Do all you need is faith? That Jesus is who he said that he is and he will do what he needs to do. And how do you check that with a child? So I brought in some of the elders of the church. They grilled my daughter as only elders can, you know, super nice grilling. And they said, I don't see any reason why. So I sat her down and I said this, Audrey, you only need to be baptized once. When you get to be older, you will know more. And you might think that you want to be baptized a second time. I I can't tell you how many times. Children are baptized and then they're baptized again later. Because um, somebody didn't sit down with them and help them to understand all of that. Didn't, Didn't move them all the way through that because we just didn't think about it. And so Audrey was baptized at almost seven. Austin was baptized at seven. And our son Alex was baptized at nine. Alex was later because I said, why do you want to be baptized? He said, because I don't want to go to hell. I said, wrong answer. (laughs) That is not why you're baptized. It's not a get out of jail free card. It's It's a statement of your faith and your understanding. You want to live for Jesus. And uh, at nine, he finally put it together. He was a little slow learner compared to the other two. I'm going to add nothing to that. Okay. Uh, these are lightning rounds. Michael set these up. And this is going to be fun because Michael said they each get one minute. That just made me laugh all day. Got all this. right. So, and he said, uh, I'll do my best. Okay, here we go. <laughs> With the hundreds of religions out there, how do we know that ours is the only true one? Yeah, for me, um, the, let me give you a general question and then the specific. And this will be some level repetitive, so this will be easier for me to do in a short amount of time. The question I always ask is, what do they point to as verifying their, like, accuracy or truthfulness? And do they live up to their, is that a legitimate standard? Do they live up to their own standard? And in many cases, you're not actually given an answer to the question. How do we know if Buddhism is true? Like, that's about what you'll get. If you talk to a Mormon person, how do you know if, how do I know? I've, I, you know, always engage Mormons when they come up to me in the parking lot, and Beth's like, they do not know what they're getting into. And I'll say, well, how do I, like, you know, I, I, I know the history of America, and I know that, that we don't have any evidence for this tribal, you know, stuff that you talk about, and they're like, well, you just believe in your heart. And it's like, really, that's what you're pointing to. A burning in the bosom is supposed to be what convinces me. So the question is, what, is, what do they in, internally point to as being evidence of their truthfulness, and do they hold up to that? Uh, in our case, I would apply the same question, and the answer is, we do have something that we point to, and it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that happened, this is true. If that happened, then the significance of it is that Jesus is God's man. Jesus is God's way of saving us. Um, And in fact, I do think that we can be convinced from a historical perspective, as much as you can be convinced about anything that has happened in the past, I think we can believe with a high degree of confidence um, that it happened, that it's true. So in my mind, the resurrection is what sets it apart. It's not anything else. Um, It really just comes down to, I am a Christian because I believe Jesus rose from the dead. And there are some days when that is all that I believe. I can play this game in my head where I call into question pretty much everything else in the creed and in the scriptures and all of it. But I I don't know how to deny the resurrection. And that keeps me where I'm at. And it says the same thing in reference to other faiths. Therefore, if Jesus is God's man, then then these other other things can't be equal to him because they don't point to the same kind of thing as evidence. Uh, Peter, the question is raised about absolute truth or something being absolutely false, that truth is relative. How does one go about explaining that that isn't correct and how do we convince others in absolute truth? Um, Absolute truth or um, truth is something that is true outside of yourself that exists separate of yourself whether or not you believe it or not. So gravity is an absolute truth. It exists. But because this is a really complicated idea and I only have less than a minute, let me just tell you this. You are the proof. 
You are, you are the proof because you should not be able to live your life the way that you live under the Lordship of Christ in the stresses that you have. You are the evidence that God is true because you should not be as patient, as kind, as loving, as persevering, as gracious, underneath pressure, um, as, as what you really are because the person of the Holy Spirit and your walk with the Spirit makes you stand out. Under pressure, you don't cuss. When people cut you off in, in Joplin traffic, you don't want to ram them off the road normally. Um, you, you want to be, sorry, Mark. Um, you want to really recognize that when somebody says there is no proof and you can't prove to me that God exists, you look at them and say, well, then let's take a look at God's people. Because they're, all of the proofs move toward showing God everywhere. But people can deny all of those, but they cannot deny the fact that you are changed. Michael, if you've worked hard to achieve, <laughs> sorry, if you work hard to achieve the job you've always He's wanted. He's blaming the contacts. We all know it's not the contacts. I'm old, I'm, I got old today. <laughs> if you worked hard to achieve the job you've always wanted and are proud of what you do and love your job, do you idolize your work? Yeah. What's the line between being proud and idolatry? Great question. And this is coming straight out of our conversation a few weeks ago about work. And um, so I'm sure there's some things that I said in that context that would be beneficial here, but I'm not going to try to go back to the notes. I just want to speak directly to the question because it's one I wrestle with myself. First thing I'd say is it's not at all bad to be proud of doing well in your work. In the same way that God created all things, and after he created each piece, he stepped back and was like, man, that's good, you know? So when you do good work and you look at it and you're like, man, that's good, whether it's making good cupcakes or building a nice house or putting together a good lesson or whatever it may be, you know, do it performing a surgery, be proud of that. And if you achieve your goals, that's something to be proud of. There's nothing wrong with being, now, that pride always has to be rooted in a gratefulness to God for giving you all of the things that enabled you to do that. So let's say you accomplish something with your mind. Well, where did that come from? You know what I mean? Let's say that you accomplish something with your hands. Well, where did those come from? And where did the materials with which you, that you formed into something come from? So it all goes back to God. There's nothing that we have that we weren't given. But within that context of gratitude, absolutely be proud of what you do. And how to know if your work is becoming an idol, there's a couple of tests that I apply to myself. One of them is something that Mark's mentioned a couple of times. If you don't have work and rest and play, then something's wrong and you are idolizing one of those three things. If you don't have adequate amounts of, I'm not saying equal amounts, but adequate amounts of work and rest and play, uh, recreation, right, enjoyment of God's good gifts, uh, rest being not working and work being work, then something's off. And work is often the one for us that is inappropriately scaled and that demonstrates that you're idolizing it in some form or fashion. Another question that you need to ask yourself is, if I lost everything that I'm proud of, would I still be okay? I'm currently in a place where I love my job. Um, I don't know if I believe in dream jobs, but I've always thought, man, this would be a role that I could really do well in and serve people well in and enjoy it. And I really do enjoy it. So in that sense, I take pride in what I do. And when I teach a good class afterwards, I say, that was good. And I don't think there's, that's not like an inappropriate pride. It's a thank you, God, for enabling me to do this by your grace. But if I lost that, if I no longer was a professor at the college or no longer was a pastor at a church and nobody was looking for me to look into me to tell them, give them answers to their questions and no one was recognizing me or patting me on the back, would I be okay? And that's a difficult question to answer because you can't actually imagine that fully unless you're there. Um, but it is nevertheless, I think, the question that we should ask. And if you know yourself, if you know yourself well enough to know, I probably wouldn't be okay. Then, then something's off on this whole identity piece. This, this core of who you are is a person who is loved by God. If you're defining yourself by that, if you're happier about the fact that God loves you than you are about the fact that you just casted out a demon, then you know you're in a good place. 
But if you're happier about the fact that you just casted out a demon or performed some good work of any kind, then the fact that you are just simply loved by God, then something is off. Uh, that's how I would answer that question. Peter, this next one's going to take more than a minute. And then uh, Scott is going to start touring. If you have a question you want to ask, go ahead and raise your hand. He'll look for you. And Scott, will come to you in two more questions, okay? Peter, this is a deep question. It's been asked... Uh, I think Brad and I would confer probably five or six different ways. The question is this. What, what do we have as believers to offer to parents who have seen their children go off to school or walk away from their faith? What do we have to say to the parents? I would like you to speak to that. And the second part of that question is, what do we say to these students, uh, our children, our, our friends who have wandered away from the faith and don't believe anymore? Uh, what word do we offer them as we face truth? I made a little list of action steps. Um, you don't have to write all these down, but you can all get them from podcasts if you want it. The, the most important thing is to think about the relationship that you have with a person because the relationship is the, the vehicle through which um, that person will be able to come back to the Lord more easily or more difficultly. Um, so reaching formally strong believers, first ask them to tell you their story of faith. Everyone has a story and they want to tell their story and you must be non-reactive to their story uh, because if they give you a story that is angry or hurtful, um, you need to absorb that pain um, and love them through that story. Number two, recognize that the doubts that they have are real. Um, we do things because we really believe something or we're struggling with something. The third one is share your own story when you had some doubts. Now, I would be careful about this because this is not about you in this moment. I want to kind of be a little counsel with you. When you ask somebody to, to tell their story, um, they're not giving you permission to overstep their story and you to tell theirs. You are welcome to say, can I tell you about a time that I had a similar doubt in my life without any um, expectation that you change your mind? Because I learned a couple of things through going through that story. Um, the fourth thing is recognize that for the time being, something or someone other than God has captured their heart. And so you, you need to recognize that this is a spiritual issue that's going on and that um, you can actually, I, I have a little saying that I call it, it's kind of sick the Holy Spirit on people, is that this is the time for you to ask God to activate the Holy Spirit inside of them. Just because they say they don't believe doesn't mean that they really don't believe. It just simply means at this time they're angry enough and they're frustrated enough or they're struggling enough to say, I don't really want to talk to you. I don't really want to, to listen to any of this. And there's a great deal of conflict inside of them. Believe me, there's a great deal of conflict. And so you just want to agitate that conflict by the person of the Holy Spirit. And by that, God knows exactly how to agitate that conflict. So if the person is, is not willing to talk to you, um, all that is left then is for the Holy Spirit to do that. Um, and then what I would say is be willing to have spiritual conversations with them, um, just ongoing conversations. And I like to think of it as leave the porch light on. Um, tell them that you're more than happy to talk with them. You're more than happy to interact with them. And that you need to remember that your very presence will create a strong reaction in them because you represent something more than yourself, especially if you're a mom or a dad. You represent a faith. And the other thing that I would say to you is give them permission to stop fighting you. Sometimes... Children leave the faith because they're fighting mom and dad. And so ask them, is there something that we can do in our relationship to make it better? Is there something that we can do that um, will allow for us to have a better parent-adult-child relationship? Take it on the chin. You need to know that sometimes 
if people want to really hurt you, they will reject your values. They don't intend to, but they're fighting with you. They're not really fighting with God. And in the meantime, they move away from God. So I think from a Christian perspective, if you have a a loved one who has done this, it is up to us to kind of band together and be able to handle that emotionally because it's too hard for somebody to handle on their own. Um, So find that support group or that person that you can talk to, whether it is a a parent or a child or a really close friend that is going through something like this. You want to know that it takes more than just you to be able to carry that load because it hurts us to see them behave that way. Um, What do we want to tell that person? Well, we want to tell them, first of all, that God is aware of their doubts. I mean, talk about God like he's real. Talk about him like he's interested in this person. Uh, Tell them that God himself... um, is simply aware that people are going to have doubts and that he's big enough to handle their doubts. He's big enough to handle their anger. He's big enough to handle their frustration. And he's also smart enough to give them the answer that they're looking for. And so ask them, would you just continue to pray that you will let God lead you? Um, At the very end, what I would say to a really complicated question is I would ask them if I could pray for them. And if they say, no, I don't want you to pray for me because all I want to do is pray God's blessing on you. Not, I'm going to evangelize you in my prayer. But just, can I just ask that God will bless you, that he will help you on your tests. He will help you in your work. He will um, show up in your life. And I always pray that God will speak the language of the person who I am talking to. God, please speak Peter's language because he needs to hear you and make yourself known to him in some way. You're just putting stress on that person. You just need to understand that there's this stress going on inside and you're just asking the Holy Spirit to rev that up a little bit and make his presence known. And so you're just gonna have to be ready for more anger or more frustration. And if the person says, no, I don't want you to pray for me, then that just simply means I'm not gonna pray audibly. But I'm gonna pray all over you like white on rice. And then what I would do is I'd get together with my little group and I would say, please pray for this person without giving the details. This is private. Please do not take people's private matters and put them on Facebook or put them in the church on the gossip chain. Just say, I'm praying for this person because he's really got some really great questions about the Lord and he's pretty agitated about that. But God knows what he needs. And would you please pray that they can make a connection and then um, sit back and wait for the next conversation. Because if it's a child or it's a loved one, you'll have the next conversation. And your goal is to love them even though they're angry. Um, The last thing I would say is Romans chapter 12, verse 21. One of my favorite passages about this and other problems says overcome evil with good. And the word good has a moral and ethical quality to it. It doesn't mean being nice. It means being morally and ethically good. Absorbing the anger, loving people back, listening to their problems and not preaching them, not not alienating them because they're angry, but embracing them in some way as best as you possibly can to allow for them to at least have contact with you and the God that you serve. There's a follow-up question, Peter, and I'd like both of you to address it just briefly, if you can. Uh, It says, you stated if you lose the awe of God, you need to reconnect. I'm not doubting, I think. I just don't I just don't feel the awe of joy the way I have in the past. I'm having trouble reconnecting any certain scriptures, etc. that what well, do you say to someone who says yeah. I know the truth but I'm I'm struggling connecting. Now let me give you just a personal experience. I'm an analytical person, so emotions really are more difficult for me. Um, which is really interesting cuz God made me counselly, <laughs> which is really funny. <laughs> like what are you doing to me? Um, So this summer, actually, um, I was thinking, how can I experience the awe of God? 
because I'm around him a lot. I love my church. It's really great. But you know, you get used to stuff, don't you? And so I asked for God, would you please surprise me? I need to experience awe in a way that is meaningful to me. And so I want you to know that God knows your language. I have, I have an opportunity to work with sexually trafficked boys in the Dominican Republic. I was down there over the summer. And what really struck me, what, what still gives me a sense of awe, is as I was training the house parents who don't know English, um, don't have any experience at all, um, had wanted to quit about a month before I got there. And I said, please tell them I'm coming. I want to help them because this is kind of what I do. And um, let them stay and I want to train them. And when I arrived and I started training them, I've never seen this ever before in my entire life, ever. It just gives me chills thinking about it. Um, I was talking to them about what they needed to do and they would start chuckling and they would start talking in Spanish with my Spanish translator. And so I was kind of left off in the dust and they would just go, ooh, that's really interesting. And what they told me was this. We didn't know what we were supposed to do. So in desperation, we just prayed to God over and over again, show us what to do. And he told us to do exactly the same things that you're telling us to do. I've never seen that. I've never seen God give up our secrets like that. I'm the, I'm the professional here, right? I'm the trained one, right? No, no, no. Where does truth come from? God? Can he give it to whoever he wants to? Yes. Any way he wants to. Absolutely. And here I am standing here. I'm an intellectual. And, and I'm standing, well, I'm actually sitting there going, you could knock me over with a feather. So here's what I want you to know. God knows your language. You need to ask him to awe you, to knock your socks off. And whether he does that emotionally or he does that relationally or he does that intellectually, he knows what will get your attention. And that, that prayer took about three weeks or so before I actually began to experience something like that. And I'm still living off of that mm-hmm. because I don't need an awful lot. I just need something every once in a while because I get so used to how amazing God is that he's no longer amazing. Mm-hmm. And I still want to have that little hit and I got it from that experience, which is really kind of cool. Yeah, and the only thing I would add to that after saying amen a lot of times, I'm trying to keep the microphone down here so my amens don't keep coming through this thing. Um, but uh, notice something about that, 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 even that story right there. Um, get outside yourself and help somebody in need. And that's often the place where you actually encounter God anew. So that's one thing. But then the other thing I'll tell you is um, learn the truth about God and tell it, like verbalize it. Um, study the scriptures, buy a book like Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, which just walks through the attributes of God. Read, study, learn, but then don't just sort of learn it and then try to sort of sit there and feel in awe about it. Um, find opportunities to communicate that. You know, once you learn what God's immutability is, even if it's a bumbling attempt, make a bumbling attempt to try to articulate that to somebody else in some setting, and you'll find over time that as words come out of your mouth that you realize are actually true about God, you'll be telling yourself the same thing and you'll hear it with your ears and you hear your own voice with your ears and you hear it with your heart and all of a sudden, holy cow, God is, you know, these, any number of these different things and it's that way in a way that I didn't see it before. So find somebody to help. There's this sort of, you know, get outside of ourselves, stop trying to conjure up the emotion that you want to feel and, and do what you know to be the good thing to do and let the emotion come and then in addition to that, learn the truth about God and find some way to articulate it even if you feel like you, you're poor at it. We all are, so give it a shot. Scott, you got any? Alright, if you need Scott's attention, he's standing right over there. Uh, if you want to ask that, the questions come in three different ways. I'm going to go ahead and handle this one uh, and you guys can comment correct. Uh, I'm open to that. Questions come in about the age of accountability for a young person to be immersed into Christ, baptized. 
Uh, questions have said, I was raised in a certain background. I was sprinkled as a child. Do you think I need to be immersed? Uh, the, the core of questions coming in, it was all sparked Sunday morning. We talked about some core values. Um, let me just state what we teach here and why we teach it. Um, when you ask me the question, and in the Christian Church, Church of Christ, we have gauged ourselves for 60 years or, or more. This is our piece of Christianity that we do better than anybody else. I want to pop that bubble. That's not true. Uh, I want to say it very clearly this way. When you ask me, do I need to be baptized? You're asking me this question. Do I need to obey Jesus? My answer will be yes. You need to pray. You need to sacrifice. You need to trust the Lord. You need to seek God above everything else and all these things will be added to you. I, so when you ask me a question like that, or any of us, I'm very confident in stating that I never answer the question, do I need to be baptized? Uh, you've heard me say it here, it's almost a cliche now. You don't have to be baptized. You get to be baptized. It is the wedding ceremony with you and the king. It is the moment when you publicly proclaim your allegiance to him in your death, as your daughter described more beautifully, and you come out of that water washed clean in the blood of Christ. That's why we baptize here. So those that asked the question to us, I was sprinkled as a child. That was a decision made for you. We're not questioning your belief in Jesus Christ or your faith. But that's a decision that was made for you. We encourage people, not so we can put it on a tote board, but we encourage every single person, make that proclamation for yourself. If I were in an arranged marriage, okay, an equivalency, if my parents arranged my marriage to Heather, I would be grateful. But they didn't. We chose each other. But if they had arranged that, that would have been arranged when we were young children. That decision would have been made for us. And it would have had a binding effect on us, but the beauty of it would have been that day that Heather and I stood in front of an officiant and we made our own proclamation by our own decision. So I hope I'm answering your question. I get drilled a little bit by insiders who say, why won't you just say you have to be baptized? Because it is an act of obedience and I hate being told what to do. So in my nature, I'm like, the minute you make that a line you have to cross, you've taken the joy from it. You've taken the beauty. You have to marry Heather. No, I want to. It means more when I come to the front of the church by my own volition. So it's not about whether your faith is weak or you're not up to snuff. Even in the book of Acts, they came across some people who had been baptized into John's baptism, but not into Christ. And all the Bible says was they taught them more fully and they were immersed. And that's, that's our tactic here. My, my nine-year-old son is hammering me. One of his best friends, Kinley, got baptized Sunday. Braden's pulling on my sleeve. Dad, he can. Wrong question. I say to him, Braden, when you can demonstrate to me loyalty, when, when, you, when you can hold on, he's a good little boy, but his heart doesn't quite understand what faith is going to require. And I want him to be able to look me in the eyes and say, I don't know what's going to hit me when I'm 16, 18, or 25 but I want to choose Jesus. When he can give me his mama's eyes and tell me that, he's going under. Baptism is a profession from each one of us that we believe of one thing, Jesus Christ is God's son. So we belabor that here and we baptize a ton of people, but that's the start of the race. That's not the completion. That's getting in, it, in on it. 
That's, that's beginning to run this race of faith. And Paul said, I'm going to press on toward the upward prize of the goal of knowing Jesus Christ. That's what we're after. Guys? Well, one thing that I would say is that we don't want to take away from anybody's faith journey. So if somebody comes from a tradition where there is not baptism by immersion by adults, we don't want to take away their faith or their faith journey. What we want to do is expose them to what the scripture teaches and in kindness and in gentleness and joining them on their faith journey, let them experience that experience without criticism. Um, I think sometimes um, Christians will be very critical if people don't believe something exactly the way that they believe. And one of the beauties about being in a faith relationship with Jesus is that it, it should get richer and richer and more full and should actually uh, reflect the truth of Scripture more and more. And so there are people that I know that have been immersed in, in churches like ours who go back to their church and they work with them. One of my favorite stories is a mentor of mine who worked with somebody um, from a, a different tradition and he went back to his church and he said, I want to tell all of these people about this. And two years later, that church erected a portable swimming pool on their front lawn and they immersed all of their members in that church. Nobody had to leave. Nobody had to change. What they had to do was come to the conclusion that this was really something that we needed to add to what we were already doing. And I think that's just a beautiful story. And that's something that um, I would say that as you go out from here, uh, we, we land on faith. And we land on faith stories. And we land on helping people to um, make that faith story more and more full and more and more complete according to the scripture. Now, if you ask me if you have to tithe, yes. Okay, so just... I just want to be clear so we understand. All right. We're, Thank we're, you, Mark. Yeah, we're, we're in a real short window now to finish, so I'm going to jump to some questions that I think uh, give application to where we're headed. Uh, one of them is, uh, how do you stand for the truth today in a world where disagreeing with someone is perceived as hating them? Um, the, answer is, is, the answer is simple, but... When I ask that question, what I really want to know is how can, I, how can I get them to believe that what I'm saying is true? That part's impossible. That part is we have to let go of feeling like there's anything we can do that will finally you know, cro- you know, cross that last T, dot that last I. But the answer to this is fruit of the Spirit. Um, it is a simultaneous radical pursuit of the truth and a simultaneous radical pursuit of, let me give you just one virtue, gentleness. If you are pursuing the truth with everything in you, and if you are pursuing gentleness with everything in you, I'm not talking about 50% on either one, 50 on this, 50 on this. I'm talking about 100% headed towards the truth and 100% headed towards gentleness, then you will become a person who's capable of articulating the truth uh, without being a jerk, without being a punk, without being mean, and without embarrassing Jesus, you know what I mean? Um, And that to me is, it really is that simple. Now again, whether that means people are going to still call you a jerk or whether that means people are going to come to believe what you're saying, we can't control those things. But gentleness, and maybe it's just me speaking from where I'm at and what the Lord's doing in my life, but gentleness and the truth. Uh, don't, don't give up anything in pursuing those two things, and I think that we'll become this kind of person. Ozark has a really good missions department, and one of our professors, Dr. Chris Dwell, told the student body a few years ago, that on average it takes 100 contacts with a real Christian, if we could use that terminology, before a Muslim will become a Christian. 100 real contacts. So if you're contact number 25, does that mean that you're a failure? 
If you're contact 53, 75, 99, does that mean that you're a failure? I think that we need to see ourselves in the greater story of somebody else's life. And a real, authentic, genuine interaction with a real Christian. And that person leaves hating that person, we'll just say that. Or angry does not mean that the culmination, the tidal wave of the church's love onto that person is not going to have a cumulative effect. So what I would say to you is go out into the world and interact with people and then don't worry about whether or not they like you at the very end because between 1 and 99, they might not like you. But when that final one goes into place, which we never know what it's going to be, it might be you. It might not be you. You might do 35 of them and then somebody else comes along and they tip over and then you get mad that you didn't get to tip tip them over. And you look at that and go, glory, hallelujah, you, you moved in that way, that you want to see the larger story for the other person and see that you are a critical, absolutely essential component of somebody who is hostile to the gospel to be able to see if it's really true and real. And do you really believe it? That's what I want to know. Do you believe it? And so I'll give you a hard time and I want to see what comes out. If you come out, you don't believe it. If Jesus comes out, then I'll pay attention. And so they're, they're testing us. And they want to know, how are you going to respond? It's kind of like what Michael's talking about with gentleness. They want to see, do you really believe this? I have a concept of Christianity, and it's not combative. And if I push you, or I say I hate you or something, do you want to, like, protest me and create trouble for me? And basically, what I want to say is, I'm, I'm just going to treat you the same way, and I might be step number 35. And I'm going to be the best step 35 I can be. Because step 36 is coming, and 37, and hopefully 100 is on its way. Jeff Walling is a preacher that I admire. He's one of the best gifted communicators I've ever heard. He had a simple sermon. The title of the sermon was Mothers, Little Brothers, Snapping Turtles, and God. And the the crux of his question was, what do they all have in common? Loving persistence. Uh, If you've ever had a sibling who would ask you all the time when you'd walk them to the park, why are we doing this? Why? 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 They'd wear you out, but you loved them and you answered every question. You school teachers get that. Moms, oh my goodness, moms, you're persistent. When you look at snapping turtles, have you ever been grabbed by one? They don't let go. If you read the psalm, I think one of the overarching choruses of the psalms is God's love is never ending. And so I believe persistence, done in gentleness, speaking the truth in love, is what we do. Sometimes people punch you to see if you'll hit back. And a Christian, according to Jesus, doesn't do that. A Christian allows themselves to be struck so that they can show love when it's least expected and the person's most vulnerable. It is a hate act now to say something is right when people don't want it to be right. But the persecution of the church is historic for a reason. The church has exploded and the power of God has been revealed when standing up for the truth with love meets our culture. And I'm, I'm not a prophet of doom, but I don't think, I think we're being very naive to assume that a stance for the truth won't cost you something. And that's where the community of faith joins together and history has recorded. Uh, God's will will get accomplished, but people are gonna have to stand up for the truth in the name of Jesus, not just in the name of being right. We talked about that a lot on Sunday morning. Uh, Michael, I'm gonna start with you and then we'll just flow this way. I'll probably have nothing to add, so it'll be shorter. Uh, how do we know those books wrapped in that leather are what we need to have? Okay. How, do, how do we know we got what we need to do what we're supposed to do? I was confident that whatever you said, I could keep it short. Um, 
The Bible, man. Yeah, the Bible. Um, this probably deserves a whole night in its own right. Um, well, uh, not, to, not to beat the same drum again, but for me, it actually does begin again with the resurrection. If I believe that Jesus really rose from the dead, then I, then I, have, no, then I have less of a problem trusting in the, this, the, the that, we, that there, if God rose from the dead, then I have less trouble believing that God is going to persist in giving us a book that accurately tells us who he is. So in the simplest sense, my belief in Scripture is actually rooted in my confidence in the resurrection. Because I believe Jesus is God's man, I believe that the book that, get, that tells us about Jesus is, is faithful, is what God wants it to be. From there, I build out into various reasons why I think it's accurate. I think it's internally consistent in its primary message. I think that it tells one unified story, even though there are sort of offshoots all here and there. I think it is corroborated by history where it needs to be. There are certain portions of Scripture um, that, uh, you know, Jesus' parables don't necessarily, there were stories about things that didn't necessarily have to happen. So there are portions of Scripture where it's not like we need to find evidence of a certain farmer sowing certain kind of seeds. He's just telling a story. But where Scripture needs to be corroborated by history, it is. Um, and I think that I would, lastly, for the sake of simplicity time-wise, I would add its power for transformation. Um, now, as soon as I say that, I open myself up to the critique that, well, other holy books have, caught, have created other holy people. True, which is why I started with the resurrection. But since I start with the resurrection, which nobody else has, I also want to add into there the fact that this, I am, I'm seriously might be the most, by nature, the most self-absorbed person who's ever been alive. And the Lord has turned me into not a great, but a good husband and a good father and a good teacher and a good mentor. I still have tons of room to grow. But without, without what this book, and it's primarily through this book, right, and the teachings of others and in my own study of it that he's turned me into, I'm very, very far from perfect. But I can't imagine where I might have been had I not, um, had, I not had the grace of God continue bringing me back to this book. So it's transformation in my own life as well as what I've seen in the lives of others. Um, and I'll just stop there. Okay. Yeah. Josh McDowell wrote a book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict and More Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he tackles this onto the fine levels for the average layperson who's not a specialist in this area. So if you're interested in looking at the details of the process by which we got the Bible and why we can rest assured that that process actually produced the book that we have and that it is a good process, um, he goes through all of that in more evidence that demands a verdict in a way that you and I can understand in a non-technical fashion. So there, there is this very lengthy process that has produced the book in addition to what Michael was talking about um, that you and I can have confidence in because of the meticulous nature of that process. I'm going to oversimplify it again because this is what I get paid to do, I think. Uh, Ron Fisher, my doctrine professor, talking about the canonicity, which is an academic word for how do we know the 66 books are real? How do we know that they're valid? How do we know that they're authentic? How do we know we have the original writing of the original author years later, all of those things. And that book, McDowell's book is exceptional in that. Ron Fisher said something that, and I don't mean to be dramatic, this is an impact moment. It was a punch that changed me. He said, he said, what if there were another book out there that's missing? And you know, you're in Bible college and you gasp. He said, what would it contain that would take away your belief in the eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ? class dismissed so what's out there that we fear we don't know some special thing we're supposed to do to get us in no Jesus would have 
spoken that. His disciples would have recorded that. There is nothing missing from the canon of Scripture that you and I need to know to be faithful to the holiness of Jesus Christ. There's nothing. And there might be a page missing. Who knows? I'm making all of this up. Your worst nightmares. There's two numbers that don't match up. What does it do to the eyewitness account of the resurrected Jesus Christ? Nothing. So I may not have all the information, but by faith, I'm never going to have all the information. Chad brought that up Sunday morning. In the book of Hebrews, they all died not having received what was promised, but every one of them died in faith and will receive everything plus so much more. So, uh, you know, Michael brought it up and didn't know. You know, one of our plans in the future is to have an apologetics course uh, to answer some of the questions people are asking. I hope you'll come back when we do because it'd be worth every second of it. Uh, Michael, one of the questions that, uh, just for terminology, define apologetics Apologetics, it comes from the Greek word apologia, which just means defense. So apologetics, most simply put, means defending the faith, providing um, reasons, logical reasons why what we believe is true. Um, so in its simplest sense, that, that's what the word means. And that's what he was talking about earlier when, you know, the word apology, if you trace it back to its root, isn't about saying I'm sorry necessarily, even though that's how we use it. It is about providing a defense for either one's actions or one's beliefs. So it's kind of a legal term in that sense. That's a great question. For years, it's like, why, do pe- why, do, why are we talking about being sorry in church so much? You know? And it's not what, that's, not what, that's what I always thought you know, growing up when I'd hear this word apologetics. I've said it. Um, yeah, it's about defending the faith. Would you help me express appreciation to these two gentlemen for their time tonight? We look forward to seeing you Sunday morning. Our topic of worldviews on sexuality. Uh, the combat between culture and the Bible. We haven't found out who's going to preach it yet, but come back, somebody will. And then next Wednesday night, we're keeping these two occupied, and we're bringing in uh, Chad Ragsdale to join us on stage, and we're going to do the most awkward Q&A on sexuality ever recorded on tape. So feel free to come join us. Let me pray. And what I'd really like to do tonight is, my heart was touched, um, I'd really like to pray for those of us who have loved ones um, who used to be with us, and now don't see themselves with us. And you know I'm not talking church attendance, right? I want to pray for you moms and dads who grieve. Uh, I've got two brothers. I think every one of us knows somebody who used to walk with Christ who's now going in a direction that's not good. Let's, let's pray Peter's prayer uh, that God will speak to them in a voice they can't deny. Please join me. God, we come to you. This is sacred. Uh, names could be spoken in this room, just a single name. And you know the story. And we hurt because it's not about us being right. It's not even about them attending church with us. It's about that without Jesus Christ, we're all lost. And without the hope, and without faith, and without living out a discipleship that honors you and restores our purposes back to life, everything we've been studying now for weeks, God, it is my simple prayer that you would speak, that you would soften the soil, that the seed of truth would grow again and produce fruit. God, you can do that in your perfect timing and in your perfect means. And as Michael has said a couple of times during this entire series, uh, God, if we are the means by which you soften that soil, turn us loose and may we be found obedient. But our prayer by faith is that those uh, seeds will grow and life will be restored and unity and peace and hope will be ours. And I pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Good night. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.